Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. We are all mammals, and under the skin, we have almost everything in common, and our imperatives are the same. Find food, stay alive, keep our babies alive, take care of our children. That's what life is for mammals. Under the skin, we are all kin, we are family. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Calling someone an animal means they're less than human, not worthy of respect, rights, or even of life itself. It's been the code word to justify countless atrocities, including the wholesale decimation of wildlife and even human genocide. But in truth, and in biological fact, human beings are animals. Scientists continue to find that intelligence and what we call consciousness appear to saturate all of nature. Clearly, it's high time to think differently about just what it means to be an animal. It's also high time to reconsider what it means to be human. Since humans are animals, are animals people too? How can we know what it's like to be other than human? How can we see into the minds of animals? As we hurtle into this sixth age of extinctions, the first caused by the human hand, half the world's biodiversity will perish within the 21st century. Will we find redemption and change course when we understand that under the skin we're all kin? As Carl Safina says, in this half hour, we visit with the visionary naturalist and conservationist Carl Safina, author of Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Safina says that the first step is paying attention and observing. This is Under the Skin, We're All Kin, reading the minds of animals. I'm your host, Neil Harvey. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Today we're going to try to simply ask and answer one simple question that many of you ask yourself several times a week, and that is, does my dog really love me, or does she just want a treat? <laughs> well, I think that simply by looking at our beloved pets, we can easily see that, yes, of course, they really love us, and just by looking at them, it's easy to see what's going on in those furry little heads. Right? Isn't it easy to see? Or maybe you can't really tell what's going on. But I'll tell you what, something is going on. You can't tell me that nothing is going on. You can see and hear more, something is going on. But we don't know what it is. A good place to start is to get out of our own heads and go straight to the source, 
as the hookah-smoking caterpillar said to Alice in Wonderland, Who are you? Carl Safina spoke at a Bioneers conference. And here's something a little weird. Why is our question, do you love me? Hey, that's not a question about them. That's a question about me. That's my insecurity talking. Do you love me is not a question about them. That's not how you get to know somebody better. So I needed a different question because that question wasn't helping me get in. And my question became, who are you? That's a question about you. Now, there are capacities of the human mind. We know that the human mind has these capacities, but are these capacities of only the human mind? What else is happening in the brains that share this planet with us? Nothing? Is nothing happening? But for a long time, many scientists said, well, we can't know. So the question of what goes on in other creatures' minds, if they even have minds, is not a scientific question because there's no way in. But that is not true. Because there are some good ways in. We can look at brains, we can consider evolution, and we can watch what they do. You can see brains, but you cannot see the minds. That might seem like a dead end. However, you can see the workings of a mind in the logic of behaviors. As a naturalist and the inaugural chair for Nature and Humanity at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, Carl Safina has merged decades of field observations with cutting-edge neuroscience to challenge our views of fixed boundaries between humans and other-than-human animals. It turns out we have a whole lot more in common than we've thought. Jellyfish were the first animals in the world to have nerves, neurons, nerve cells. And it's still true that a nerve cell is a nerve cell, whether it's in a jellyfish or a dog or a human or a crayfish. Jellyfish gave rise to chordates, chordates gave rise to vertebrates, vertebrates came out of the sea, built auditoriums, and had conferences. And here we all are. But our nerve cells are very much like jellyfish nerve cells individually. Octopuses are mollusks, and yet they recognize human faces and use tools as well as do most apes. How do we honor the ape-like intelligence of octopuses? We boil them by the thousands. <laughs> On coral reefs, there are fish called groupers. And several kinds of groupers, if they chase a fish that they'd like to eat into a crevice in the rocks or the coral, they sometimes go to where they know a moray eel is sleeping. They have a way of signaling to the moray, follow me. The moray understands that signal, often will follow. Then the grouper says, it's here. And the moray understands that too. And the moray will go in, and sometimes the moray will get the fish, and sometimes the fish will bolt out, and the grouper will get the fish. This is an ancient interspecies communication partnership, and people didn't know about this until about a decade ago. 
And when I say people, I mean the 17 people who read that paper. <laughs> How do we honor this ancient partnership? You might think boiled, but no, fried. <laughs> Now, a pattern is emerging, and that pattern says a lot more about us than it says about all of them. While Safina was exploring the wondrous lives and cultures of a diversity of animals around the world, the pattern he saw was that humanity has been erasing wildlife at the pace of extinction. He knew he had to do everything he could to stop the biological annihilation. He was instrumental in putting overfishing into the mainstream spotlight and led campaigns to ban the drift nets that were deleting entire populations and habitats. He helped rewrite U.S. federal fisheries law and pass a U.N. global fisheries treaty. He worked tirelessly to conserve the dwindling global populations of tuna, sharks, and other threatened marine species. Through the Safina Center, he has relentlessly kept educating and inspiring millions of people to conserve wild things and wild places. Recently, Carl Safina has returned to his original passion, the true nature of other-than-human animals. What do they do, and why do they do it? His curiosity about other creatures took wing growing up in the concrete jungle of Brooklyn, New York. When I was seven, I got a flock of homing pigeons, and they were mine to take care of, and they were my responsibility. And when you raise pigeons, you stack some boxes in the coop. You used to use peach crates, and you provide them with nesting material, and they sort themselves out, and they court, and they figure out who their mates are going to be. And sometimes they fight over all of that, and the adults leave during the day, and then they come home, and they eat supper, and they feed their babies, and they go to sleep. And across the yard, we lived in our own stack of boxes, where the people sorted themselves out and occasionally fought about it, and the adults left during the day, and they came back and fed their babies supper and went to sleep. And I always thought, from the time I was seven, that the lives of us and other animals are essentially the same. They have the same life. It's just different, but it's the same. And then I learned how wrong all of this was, and I got my PhD in ecology and all that stuff. And the more I learned, the more I, I thought, I still think exactly what I thought when I was seven years old, but now I understand it better. Different, but the same. Is it all that surprising when we know people are animals too? We are all mammals, and under the skin, we have almost everything in common, and our imperatives are the same. Find food, stay alive, keep our babies alive, take care of our children. That's what life is for mammals. Under the skin, they have the same skeleton, the same organs, essentially the same nervous system, the same chemicals that create mood and motivation in human beings create mood and motivation in them. They have the exact same chemicals. In the flippers of whales are the exact same bones that are in your hand. Under the skin, we are all kin. We are organically related. We are family. This is the truth of the matter. And so we see commonalities that we all understand. They understand helping when helping is needed, the same way we do. We see curiosity, mostly in the young who are exploring the world for the first time. We see the deep bonds of family relation. We see the deep bonds of mates to one another. 
Dancing is dancing. Courtship is courtship. We see it and re we recognize it for exactly what it actually is. And Carl Safina suggests that once we dissolve the false separation we've made between humans and the rest of nature, things start to look decidedly different. He says that if humans could find their way home over 10,000 miles of totally unmarked ocean to a tiny pinpoint of land to find their own baby, as an albatross can do, or if humans could travel through the air as fast as a peregrine falcon, no doubt we'd call it genius. But since it's not us, we mostly don't care. Until now, perhaps. Carl Safina spoke with us at a Bioneers conference. Well, there's many different ways of trying to understand what intelligence is. It's a definitional kind of a problem. One definition that I kind of like is intelligence is the ability to solve a problem that you've never been confronted with before because then you have to have a certain amount of foresight. You have to be able to see something that doesn't really exist yet that you could do to deal with the problem. Some animals are more intelligent than other animals in the sense that they can solve novel problems better or faster. That's just a measure of something about them. I'm very interested in things regardless of whether they're particularly intelligent or not. There are a lot of things that just do incredible things or they're unbelievably beautiful or they have extreme abilities, extreme diving abilities, extreme navigational and migrational abilities. You know, all these things are totally incredible. They have nothing to do with are they smart. It's just that you know, we live in a beautiful, beautiful world filled with fascinating living things that have somehow found and developed lots of answers to how can we live on Earth. How can we live on Earth? Or more accurately, how can we keep living on Earth when we're unraveling the very web of life on which our human lives and societies depend? We can start by asking our planet mates because, yes, we really are surrounded by genius and they've been here a whole lot longer than we have. And then we ask a really weird question. Are they even conscious? <laughs> Why would we ask a question like that? When you get general anesthesia, you become unconscious. That means that the sensory input from your sense organs is something you stop experiencing. It's like you take your eyes and your ears and your nose and disconnect them from your brain. Then when you come out of it, you regain consciousness. You get your senses connected back to your brain. That's what consciousness is. It's an awareness of your senses. Why would we ask whether animals that have eyes and see with them, ears and hear with them, noses and smell with them, who play with each other, are conscious? Because we have a favorite story. And our favorite story is, we're the only ones that matter, and we're the best. I hope you're clapping because you disagree with that statement. <laughs> in an aquarium in South Africa, there was a nursing age baby bottlenose dolphin. Her name was Dolly. And a keeper was on a break, smoking, looking through the window at the pool. And the little baby Dolly came over and looked at him while he was smoking. And then she went to her mother and she nursed, and then she came back to the window, and she let go of all the milk, and it surrounded her head like a cloud of smoke. <laughs> a nursing-age infant dolphin got the idea, I'm going to use milk to imitate whatever he's doing. When humans use one material 
to represent another, we call that art. Carl Safina has no doubt that other than human animals have consciousness. Of course, we can define consciousness, but no one actually knows how it happens or works. Yet most of us think we know it when we see it, and scientists are starting to prove that other creatures experience it. So I was talking to a reporter about this one time, and I thought I was doing a good job of explaining, and she said, okay, okay, you're saying all this stuff, but how do I really, really know, how do you know that other animals can think or feel? And I was trying to think of, well, what is the best scientific paper example that I can use? And then I realized the answer was right on the rug. When my puppy comes over to me and rolls over on her back, now, she doesn't get up from the rug and go over to the dining room table and roll over on her back, right? She comes to me. Why does she do that? Because she's just had a thought. And the thought is, I would like my belly rubbed. <laughs> and I'm going to go to him because we are family. And I know that if I roll over on my back, I have nothing to fear. I can not only trust him completely, but he knows what I'm asking for, and he knows how to get the job done and make it feel really good. So <laughs> she has had a thought, and she has felt. And it's not really a lot more complicated than that. But if you think that's not scientific enough, you all have seen your pets sleeping and thinking that they're dreaming because their legs are twitching, and they're going woof, 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 woof. And you say, well, they're dreaming. Well, they are dreaming. You can wire up the brain of a rat and watch it dream. They dream. Now we have scientific proof of what's going on. It's no longer true that there's no scientific way into the mind of others. There is. When we return, more from Carl Safina on how reading the mind of animals inspires us to set our minds to conserving nature. This is Under the Skin, We're All Kin, Reading the Minds of Animals. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. To see and hear more from Carl Safina and to explore all available Bioneers audio, video, and articles, please visit Bioneers.org. Among Navajo people, one of the worst insults you can hear is that you're acting as if you have no relatives. As Carl Safina has delved into the minds of animals, the inescapable and agonizing truth is that human animals are ravaging our animal relatives. Entire populations of elephants are getting wiped out for their tusks and teeth, even though we now know elephants are incredibly intelligent and have sophisticated cultures and societies. Likewise, generations of wolves in the U.S. have been wiped out. After federal policies decimated the thriving wolf population in Yellowstone National Park because ranchers were losing a few cattle, the elk and deer populations exploded. 
the park finally had to bring back the wolves to restore balance to the age-old predator-prey relationship. But it's far more difficult to repair the complex social and cultural relationships among wolves, a bit analogous to how it would be for people experiencing genocide. A wolf pack is a nuclear family. It has usually two breeding adults, mom and dad, and they're young from two or three years. When they're young, get to be adolescents, they leave to try to find their stake in life, just like in our nuclear families. This family had mom and dad and dad's brother. They went outside the park at the onset of winter because Yellowstone is 7,000 feet. The uncle was shot almost immediately. They retreated. They went back a couple of weeks later. The mother was shot. And then this family that had been very, very stable started to do something weird. Violent sibling rivalry. There had been total order loyalty, organization, now it was chaos. The most precocious of the wolves, the one on her back there, was kicked out of her family. That's her on the left. The father started wandering around, maybe trying to look for his mate and his brother. He lost his family, he lost his hunting support, he lost his mate and brother, he lost his territory where the food is. I thought she would do okay because she was about the age where she was going to leave anyway, and he was doomed. But what happened instead was, a few months later, she was shot starving at somebody's chicken coop, and he survived. Two years later, he had a new mate, a new territory, and pups. Why am I telling you the details of that story? Because they have lives, and when we hurt and kill them, the trajectory of life for the survivors is totally changed. It's different from what it would have been. They're not just numbers. They're individuals in families with relationships. We are made individuals by our relationships, and so are they. Denying that other animals feel and experience emotions, including grief, loss, and trauma, allows us to other them. The notion that other-than-human animals have empathy still triggers controversy in the scientific community. Yet we've seen humpback whales rescue seals from killer whales. We've watched wild elephants stand by people who were injured, guarding them through the night until someone came to help. Dolphins help guide distressed ships to shore, and they mourn for human deaths. If animals do fit the definition of personhood that we use for ourselves, aren't animals people too? People who only know one thing about animal behavior know that you're not ever allowed to use this word and do this thing, which is to attribute human thoughts and emotions to other species. This is against the rules. Well, science is supposed to have curiosity and find out what's really going on. So that is unscientific. One of the things they say is that empathy makes us human. Well, it turns out that empathy is one of the oldest emotions, because anything that lives in a group needs to have empathy. Empathy is when your mind matches your mood to the mind of your companions. The things that make us human are not the things we keep telling ourselves are the things that make us human. Here's what I think it is. I don't think it's that we do everything totally uniquely and differently. I think it's that we are the extreme animals. We are the most creative and the most destructive. 
and the most compassionate and the cruelest animal that has ever lived. And we are all of those things all the time, all jumbled up together. And that is us. Love and caring is not new with us, and it's not the thing that makes us human. We're not the only ones that care about our mates. We're not the only ones that care about our children. Now, this is not the relationship we are supposed to have with the rest of the living world. It's not the one we want to have. But we don't think about the consequences of our actions, even though we've named ourselves after our brains. And yet, when we expect new human life, we paint animals on the nursery room walls. We don't paint cell phones. We don't paint desks and work cubicles. We paint animals. We don't even realize why we're doing it. Here's why I think we do it. I think because we have a blessing for our babies that we're not even aware of. And what it says is, welcome to this beautiful living world. We're not alone. We have company. And yet, every one of those animals in every painting you see of Noah's Ark, these animals deemed worthy of salvation by the Creator, every one of them is in mortal danger now. And their flood is the rising tide of us. So I started by saying, do they love us? That question needs to be turned around. The question is, are we capable, are our human minds capable of loving them enough to simply let them continue to exist on Earth with us? And that is a write-your-own-ending kind of a story. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Carl Safina, Under the Skin, We're All Kin, Reading the Minds of Animals. You can see and hear more from Carl Safina and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, blogs, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Producer, Teo Grossman. Program engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest people of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest people through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by Blue Dot Sessions at www.sessions.blue and by International Feel Records at internationalfeel.com. 
The opinions expressed on the Bioneers' revolution from the heart of nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. This is program number 1117.